What a joy to be here. Uh, my husband and I lived in Colorado Springs for about 10 years, and then we moved back to Akron, Ohio, so we always look for opportunities to come back to God's country here in Colorado, uh, and just admiring the mountains out there, just so beautiful, and thank you, Gary. Gary and I met probably 15 years ago when we were all quite a bit younger. He came as a guest of Focus on the Family, and I think I interviewed you. Um, but we struck up a friendship that has continued, and boy, what a blessing it is to be with you today at Cherry Hills. And I don't take this lightly, um, just the opportunity to worship with you and address this topic. Before we do so, let's address the elephant in the room. Some of you walked in this morning and you're like, why in the world is this lady from Akron here to talk about sex? That's just kind of weird. You're not used to coming into a Sunday Christian church and hearing a woman talk about sexuality or anybody talk about sexuality. You know, we have a tradition, a history in the Christian world of not talking about sexuality. And some people ask me why. I don't really know because the Bible is very explicit in talking about God's heart for our sexuality, God's design for sexuality. Um, but in our day and age, it does feel awkward to have these conversations in church. But I think it's important to change that. I think uh, the culture is having so many conversations around sexuality and that we need to, as God's people, uh, begin to talk about what is God's heart? How would he shepherd us through this? And I know some of you are feeling, as Gary mentioned, awkward. Maybe you've got butterflies in your stomach. You're wondering, what in the world is this woman going to talk about? What's she going to address? And if you're feeling uncomfortable, just think of what it's like to be me. <laughs> I'm the one up here talking about this. And when God called me to this ministry about 11 years ago, it certainly wasn't something that I eagerly signed up for. But as we sang today, when you lay your whole self down to God, he gets to decide what you do. And this is what he's chosen for me to do in this season. And uh, although it's a difficult topic, I will tell you there's great joy in it, just seeing how the Lord speaks, how he sets people free when we're willing to enter into difficult spaces. Well, Gary mentioned that my husband and I have three sons. They are young adult nowadays, uh, but let me just tell you, they're not thrilled with what mom does for a living either. Uh, imagine what it was like for them in high school when another teacher pulled them aside and said, hey, I heard your mom on the radio talking about sex again. Uh, so those of you who are teenagers and next time your mom or dad embarrasses you, just remember it could be worse. You could be a slattery. <laughs> but uh, when our kids were little, sometimes when we put them to bed, my husband Mike would put them to bed and he would often teach them pieces of the Christian faith. So during one season, they were learning the Lord's Prayer. And during a particular season, he was helping them memorize the Ten Commandments. And at the time, our oldest two sons, Michael and Andrew, were probably around six and four. And so they're memorizing the thou shalt nots. They're memorizing the Ten Commandments. And then Michael came up with a question. He said, Dad, what does adultery mean? And Mike had to think very quickly on his feet, like how would you define adultery to a four and a six-year-old? Well, he did a great job. He said, well, adultery is when God puts you in one family, but you don't want to be in that family anymore, so you go to be with another family. And so the conversation went on, and he didn't ask any follow-up questions, which Mike was grateful for. Now, let me tell you, I didn't know that this conversation had happened. And the next day, I'm getting dinner ready in the kitchen, and I call the boys in for dinner, and my four-year-old Andrew runs in very upset 
He says, Mom, Mom, Michael's breaking a commandment. And I was said, what is he doing? Thinking, well, he had lied or he had stolen something. And Andrew said, Michael's breaking the adultery commandment. Now, this got me concerned. And so I asked, well, what exactly is Michael doing? And Andrew said, you call us in for dinner, but Michael said he wants to eat with Joey's family instead of our family. You know, sometimes our kids memorize the rules, they memorize the Ten Commandments, but they don't really know how to put it in context. Um, you know, and that's not just true of my son, this is how kids learn. Um, there was a group that was looking at biblical literacy among children, and so did a quiz with sixth graders just to see how much they knew about the Bible. And I'd love to share with you some of the things that these sixth graders thought about the Bible. The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Christians have only one spouse. This is called monotony. (laughs) The Jews were a proud people and throughout history they had trouble with unsympathetic genitals. So sometimes they don't quite get it right. But as I think about those fun things that kids say, and as I even think about that episode with my my little boys at the time, you know, I've realized that sometimes we as God's people, even though we're all grown up, we still stumble in the similar ways. Uh, What do I mean by that? I mean, you could have come to church for years and decades, and all you've learned about sexuality is you've learned the rules. You've learned the commandments. You've learned the thou shalt nots. You've learned good Christians don't do these things. But you've never learned the heart of God related to that. You've never learned the why God created our sexuality and why he cares so much about it. You know, when kids are little, when they're about three or four years old, they begin asking one question about everything. And that question is why? Do I have parents in here that have three or four year olds? Raise your hands. And is it true that they start asking why about everything? Uh, Why do I have to eat broccoli? It's gross. Why do I have to go to bed when it's still sunny out? Why does my brother get a bigger piece of pizza than I do? They ask why about random things, everything. Uh, And sometimes those whys can be really fun and funny and sometimes they're exhausting. And what you realize as a parent is as kids grow, they don't stop asking why, they just ask why about different things. Why can't I have the car keys? Why can't I go to that party? Why can't I skip school today? And you know, we've all done it as tired parents. Uh, We've responded with the answer we probably heard growing up a lot of times to the why questions. Why? Because I said so. Now, if you've Given that answer to your children, don't feel bad or guilty, we've all done that. But I want you to imagine what would happen if every time a child asked a why question, we responded with, because I said so. Kids, as they grow and as they learn, they would never know why you have to eat healthy food. They'd never learn to reason for themselves why you have to get a good night's sleep or why we choose to go certain places that might not be good for us. And so, Good parents disciple their children in all areas, trying the best that they can to explain the why questions so that kids learn to think for themselves. 
But what I've realized growing up in the church is that Christians have a lot of why questions about sex. We're asking questions like, why does it matter that you're married in order to have sex? What's the difference just because of a ring? Why would God say that sex was designed just between a husband and wife, a man and a woman? Why would it be wrong for two women to sleep together? Why is it wrong to look at pornography? We read the, the do's and don'ts in the scripture, but we don't have the context for the why. And what I've seen is often in the church when we ask those kinds of why questions, we respond with, because God said so. Because the Bible says so. Now are there times as the followers of God where we just need to by faith say, God, I don't quite understand this, but I will obey you even if I don't understand the why. Yes, that's the journey of faith. But there are also times where we need to realize that God has put the why questions in our heart. He created us as rational creatures who ask why. Animals don't ask why, human beings do. And if we refuse to dig deeper into those why questions, then the rules about sex can feel arbitrary, outdated, and they can even feel very unloving. And so what I wanna do in the short time that we have this morning is address this why question, the big why question. Why does God care about your sexuality? Now, let me just say we have a short period of time to address a very complicated question, but I hope what you learned today might just awaken your curiosity, might whet your appetite for understanding God's heart for these issues and what that means to you in your own personal journey. So we're gonna talk about why God cares about your sexuality and to begin with, I want you to think about the fact that God created sexuality first and foremost to reveal something. He created our sexuality as a form of revelation. You might think, well, why, what does that mean? Help me understand that. Well, let's start with the fact that everything God has created in the natural world, he created to reveal. And the, the scripture says that all of creation reveals the glory of God. When we look in Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul wrote, what may be known about God is evident to us through what he has created. And so when God created this world, he created it very intentionally to reveal himself. And different created things reveal different aspects of him. So for example, if we look at the plant life and trees, we see that God has intentionally created trees to have these deep roots, and the roots are what keep a strong tree from falling in the wind, it stays steady. And then we see in Psalm chapter one, David, the psalmist actually reflecting on this and saying, blessed is the man who is like a tree whose roots are planted by streams of water. They're constantly nourished because that Christian, that person will not sway with the winds of culture like the chaff will being blown by the wind. And in due season, they will bear fruit. And so the physical is used to reveal spiritual truth. Now, when we look through scripture, we see all kinds of examples of this, that the mountains reveal something about God's righteousness and his steadfastness. We look at the stars that show us the greatness of God. Jesus taught referring to things like sheep and wolves and grapes and vineyard, all these created things 
that now reveal aspects of who God is. And that's not just true, true of the physical created world, it's also true of the human experience, what it is to be human. How many of you have ever felt really hungry? Okay, some of you are raising your hands. If you're not raising your hands, you should try fasting. You know what it is, most of us know what it is to feel physically hungry and in our day and age in the Western world, we don't really know what it is to go without food for, for days, for weeks, like many people throughout history would have, but we know what it is to be physically hungry and we know what it is to have a really good meal when you're hungry, how satisfying that is. Now I know you all will raise your hands on this question because you live in Colorado. How many of you ever have felt very thirsty we, we all have. Here you, you wake up in the middle of the night and your mouth is like a desert and you just long for that water. You know what it is to long for water and how refreshing it is to get that drink of fresh water. Now why did God create us so that we need food and water on a regular basis? Well in scripture we see that God gave us the physical experience of hunger and thirst so that we might know the spiritual experience of hunger and thirst. If you've never been physically hungry and thirsty, you would have no idea what Jesus was saying when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It would mean nothing to you when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And when he told the woman at the well, I am the living water. If you drink of me, you'll never have to be thirsty again. You see, the physical experience of hunger and thirst give us a concept for the spiritual experience of being satiated and refreshed by the presence of God, the word of God. We know what spiritual food is because we know what physical food is. And I can give you all kinds of examples, work and rest. Those are part of the human experience and also part of the spiritual journey of finding our rest in God. And it's also true in relationship. You know, some of you here have been adopted or you've adopted a child and you know very intimately the emotions and the choices and the journey of adoption. And so when you read in scripture that God has adopted us into his family, that spiritual truth is way more powerful to you because of your relational experience of adoption. So what I'm trying to show you is that God intentionally created everything physically to reveal spiritually. And you might say, well, okay, what does that have to do with our sexuality? Well, God intentionally created us as sexual people so that we would have a physical way of understanding a spiritual truth. And maybe you've never thought about the fact that God intentionally created you as a sexual person. Because of the fact that we've been so silent in the church about sex, some of us get very squeamish about even acknowledging that. One comedian said, if you heard most religious people talk about sex, you'd think God created the arms and the hands and the torso, but that the devil slapped on the genitals. And sometimes we act that way. You know, when we read Psalm 139, when David says that you have known me intimately, that you formed me in my mother's womb in that secret place, in the inmost place, you know me, we don't think about the fact that God shaped all of David's body, that God created his sexuality. But God has intentionally created us as male and female and made us as sexual people 
because he wants to reveal something about himself. So what could he possibly be revealing through our sexuality? And this is my second point that I'd love for you to take away. God has intentionally revealed our sexuality or created our sexuality to reveal his covenant love. Now what in the world does that mean? What I want you to understand is that your sexuality is not primarily about romantic love or even erotic love. It's about covenant love. And really, God's covenant love is the story of the whole of Scripture. If you read the whole Bible, what you see the Bible is saying is that God created us for a relationship with Him. And He created His covenant people to have this relationship that is based on His character as a promise, it's a journey of intimacy. God created us for His love. And he's given us our sexuality as a physical way to understand what covenant love looks like and how it plays out. You're like, okay, Julie, where are you getting this from the Bible? You know, we are so familiar with the passages of the Bible, again, that talk about the rules of sexuality, that sometimes we don't see the story of our sexuality throughout scripture. And the Bible really does tell us a story about our sexuality, and it begins in Genesis. In Genesis chapter two, before sin entered the world, we read that God created a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and the scripture says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. And then Moses writes, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And that the word there for one flesh is applying to sexual intimacy. There's this sexual union. Now again, this is before sin entered the world. Now, if we fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible is Revelation, we see another wedding. But this wedding isn't between a physical man and a woman. We see that it is a wedding between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride. It says in Revelation that we should rejoice, we should be glad, we should exalt, because the wedding of the bridegroom has come and the bride has made herself ready. So we see weddings on the bookends of scripture. We see one between a husband and wife and one between Christ's church. And then what the apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter five when he's teaching on marriage and he's teaching on male and female within marriage, he's, he's saying that this wedding in Genesis is actually pointing to the, the wedding in Revelation. He says very clearly, he repeats Genesis, he says for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He says, but this is a mystery. I'm really talking about Christ and the church. If you read scripture, friends, and some of you have read the whole Bible from cover to cover, what you will see is a story of our sexuality that says the physical of marriage and sexuality and desire and faithfulness points to the spiritual of God's pursuit of us and his promise to be faithful to us. You see it in the Old Testament with God's covenant people, the nation of Israel. And when the Israelites were spiritually unfaithful, what did, what did God call them? He called them harlots, prostitutes. He said, you're, you're being like an unfaithful spouse. You're cheating on me. And so the physical was a metaphor and illustration for the spiritual. And then we see in the New Testament that Jesus said, I have come in to usher in a new covenant, but this covenant is between Christ 
and his bride. And there's all this bridal language in the New Testament to help us understand our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are like, wow, I've never heard this before. And some of you may even feel like this is hard to grasp. Like how in the world could sexuality have anything to teach me about God's love? And I know for some of you that has been because your experience of sexuality has been horrendous. Perhaps it has been the greatest source of pain and brokenness in your life. And it almost feels cruel to connect that to something about the love of God. And if that's you, I want you to know that you're not alone. And there is a reason why this feels like such a disconnected message from our experience. And that reason is because sex is always going to be and always has been a spiritual battlefield. Sex has always been and continues to be where the enemy would love to keep us from understanding the beauty of covenant love, the beauty of male and female, the beauty of the passion of a covenant. You know, if you go to the Denver Museum of Art, I've never been there, but I've heard it's good. If you go there tomorrow, what you're gonna see along with works of art is you're gonna see a lot of security. Now, why is there security in every art museum? Well, first of all, because they don't want people to steal the paintings but also because there are people who uh, find great pleasure in destroying beautiful works of art. Great works of art have always been under risk of vandalism. Perhaps one of the most famous and priceless works of art is the Mona Lisa. I don't know if you think she's beautiful or not, but regardless, uh, she is priceless. And when we look at her history, she has been vandalized many times with spray paint, Somebody once threw a teacup at her. I wonder what was behind that. Someone's thrown a rock at her. Someone else tried to cut her with a razor blade. Uh, and here, if we can put a picture up, you see somebody threw cake at her. I don't know why they thought cake was a good idea, but, uh, but people love to vandalize a priceless work of art like that. Another priceless work of art is Michelangelo's Piata. Piata. And the Piatas had several attacks. This one is from 1972. It was caught on camera. A Hungarian man jumped over the rail of St. Peter's Basilica and attacked this with a, ge ge a geologist's knife while screaming, I am Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. That's, that's an eerie thought there. Okay, here's a picture of a Picasso being vandalized. Now the thing about the Picasso is you don't know which one's vandalized. <laughs> but the point is if there's a priceless work of art, there will always be people that will try to deface it or destroy it. And can I invite you to think about human sexuality as a priceless work of art? Something that God has created to reveal to us the beauty of how he draws us into covenant the beauty of passion and love and faithfulness, the beauty of vulnerability and intimacy and safety. But Satan works overtime to destroy that. Satan cannot create. He cannot make anything of his own. He doesn't have his own clay. And so what he does is he, he actively destroys the most beautiful creations of God. 
Author Christopher West put it this way, if we want to know what is most sacred, just look at what is most violently profaned. And I think all of us would say, as we look in our world today, that there's perhaps nothing that is more violently profaned than our sexuality in all sorts of ways. There's nothing under greater attack than our sexuality. And some of you are very aware of this and you're very troubled by this as you look in our culture and you wanna change things. And you worry about your kids, you worry about your grandchildren, you worry about your friends, and hey, as a mom, I know what that feels like. I remember about 15 years ago or so when my kids were a little older, maybe the oldest one was 10, and I was at the grocery store with them, and some of you moms and dads, you know what that's like to go to the grocery store with hungry children at the end of the day. It's not a delightful experience. You just wanna get through it. And I was having one of those days as a mom with my three sons, and I was kind of zoning out as I was waiting in the checkout line. And I noticed that my 10-year-old son was looking very intently at the magazine rack that had the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. And that got my attention. I'm like, oh, Michael, don't look at that. Stop it. You know, so I grab the stack of magazines, and I'm waiting, and my, bread, my blood is boiling as, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this is here at eye level for kids. And I'm getting ready to confront the, the cashier. And when I got to the checkout, I, I, I plopped the stack of magazines on the counter, and I said, these magazines are at eye level for children. Can you please not have them there? And the, the cashier said, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. You're going to have to talk to the manager. Now let me just say that this is not my personality. Uh, I'm usually pretty quiet if I don't have a microphone. Um, my, my personality is I'm low key, I don't like conflict. This is not something I would normally do, but I was worried about my kids. And I kind of got a little bit of that righteous anger going, and so I'm getting all ready to talk to the manager. And I am so thankful that people didn't have their phones to video record this and put it on YouTube back then. Uh, or I would have really embarrassed myself because I was making a scene when I talked to the manager. And I, I said to this man who was the manager of the store, hey, like, I come here to shop every t once a week with my kids, and these magazines, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, are right where my kids can see it. Would you please not have these available in eyesight of children? And he said, no, there's nothing I can do. I said, but I'm here to buy bread and milk and everything wholesome this is wrong. And he said, lady, I'm sorry. And I said, well, I'm just going to have to buy my bread and milk and eggs somewhere else. And he said, well, suits me, but you're going to find this magazine in every store in Akron, Ohio. Now, when my kids heard me retell that story, they said, mom, you are a Karen. <laughs> you don't know what that is. Just ask somebody under 30. Yeah, I was a little bit of a care in there. Um, you know, but that, some of you identify with that. Many of you do. You're rightfully concerned about the ones you love. And you're wishing that it could be as simple as a swimsuit edition when you think about the threats that are facing this generation. And you want to do something like I wanted to do something. But as I brought that scenario home before the Lord and as I began to pray about it and process my anger and my fear about what would happen to my sons growing up in today's culture, 
the Lord began to show me that there was work he wanted to do in my heart. So often we think of the culture war out there and we want to fight it. But you know, Jesus didn't come to win a culture war. He came to win a spiritual battle. And the spiritual battle is not just out there, it's in here. It's in our own hearts, it's in our own lives. And the Lord began to show that to me in my own life. The wounds that I had never really addressed, the lies that I believed about, the sexu- about sexuality, the conflict and brokenness that existed in our marriage that we didn't know where to go for help. And I began to realize that in order for God to work through me, he had to first do some serious work in me. And that is always the case of spiritual battles. When I read the prophets and I I read about revivals like the one that Nehemiah started, or the integrity of Daniel living in Babylon, when you read these prophets' prayers, they begin their prayers not with, Lord, fix what's out there, but God, forgive me and my family for the ways that I have contributed to the brokenness that I see. And God began to burden my heart and break my heart for the ways that I had not surrendered this area of my life to him. And I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I don't do that kind of stuff. And you know, I, I didn't either. It wasn't that there was this obvious blatant sin But you know, Satan doesn't care if it's a big sin or if it's a hidden wound or if it's an attitude that has not been repented of because sexuality is not this problem we need to fix. It's a spiritual territory that God wants to reclaim in our lives. And what I realized is that over the years, growing up in the church, nonetheless, Satan had vandalized the beautiful gift of sexuality in my own heart. And friends, over 10 years of ministry in the Christian church, I know that that is true of every single one of us in every room that I go into because we, not, we have not reclaimed this area of sexuality. We've been silent on it. We've been focused about what's happening in the world And it's way easier to be angry about what's happening out there than it is to be honest with what's happening in here. And I say that to let you know, hey, you are are not alone if this message is hitting you. You know, if you're getting that feeling like God is speaking to me about some brokenness in my life, you are not alone. I know that there are people here, men and women, who have been damaged by simplistic messages from the church, maybe the purity culture, that has made you feel like sexuality is shameful. I know there are men and women in this room who are still tormented by sexual trauma that happened decades ago. I know there are couples in this room for whom sexuality has become the thing that divides you, not unites you, that you're working through and addressing things like betrayal and sexual addiction. And I know there are men and women, young men and women, boys and girls in this room who have already experienced the clutches of pornography and you don't know how to get free from it. You don't know how to get rid of those images. 
When we talk about the power of God to set us free, God has the power to set us free in every area. But friends, Jesus will not heal what we do not expose. And our silence in the church has made us feel like we have to keep these things a secret, like we can't bring them to God. God created your sexuality as something beautiful to reveal his covenant love. And without exception, we've experienced the, vandal, the vandalizing of that gift, some in great profound ways. But Jesus has come to set captives free, to remove us from prison, from darkness, in every area, including sexuality. And if you are concerned about what's happening in our world today, and you should be, here's what I would ask you to do. Begin first by asking the Lord, would you show me how sexuality's been vandalized in my own heart and my own life? Would you begin to do the work of God that you need to do in me so that someday you can work powerfully through me? Friends, when you look at Highlands Ranch, when you look at Denver, when you look at Colorado, when you look at America, you know that there are so many hurting and confused and we're going the wrong direction. And the answer isn't, first and foremost, to change our laws. It's for the Spirit of God to convict his children and to fill us so that we have a message of hope and truth that bring people to him. Now I know this message for some of you brought up more questions than answers. Why does God care about our sexuality? But I hope that this is the beginning of you as an individual, as a family, as a church family, to say, God, we want you to reclaim this territory within us so that we can see you move in a hurting world. And as we close, I would invite you just to take a minute or two before the Lord. I know for me, sometimes I go to church and I really do feel like, okay, God wants to say something to me. But then we leave and we get busy with the things of the day and that seed gets kind of picked up. So I'm gonna ask you just at your seat, if you would close your eyes and just ask the Lord, how would you like to begin to work in my heart? And then Gary will close us.